I'm John Walters. I'm Chief Operating Officer at Hudson Institute. I want to welcome everybody here to this, this uh, event. Um, as a little bit of background, I want to explain how this event links to the past of both um, countries of, of uh, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia, but also to Hudson. Uh, in November 1991, Hudson Institute welcomed the prime ministers of these three countries to our headquarters, which at that time was in Indianapolis. This was the first ever conference on the Baltics in the United States. At that event, Vice President Dan Quayle said, it's most appropriate that we meet today at Hudson, for Hudson Institute is dedicated to the primacy of ideas, the ideas of indi about individuals of the international community, the ideas of freedom and self-government that bind the Baltic peoples, the American people, and the institutions like Hudson. 25 years later, Hudson's commitment to trans the transatlantic partnership to NATO and to free peoples has never been stronger, and we are honored to welcome our guests here today and uh, the people and the uh, relationship that they have so much offered to both represent and continue to support and strengthen. Um, I want to welcome three ministers here to Hudson, now in Washington. Um, our plan is to, uh, I will briefly introduce them, <laughs> and then they've agreed to, to make some brief remarks and spend most of the time allowing uh, you to ask questions and for them to answer questions of, uh, of, of people here in the audience. We have a quite distinguished group of people, and I know there are many issues, and they're more than generous about talking about them. We expect that questions will not stop before we run out of time, and they've agreed to, uh, to, to, to stay for a little bit afterwards, and if you want to um, uh, uh, informally uh, ask them questions, they've agreed to do that as well. So I want to thank them for that generosity. Um, allow me to introduce our distinguished guest. Uh, Finn Mixer has been, I apologize for my, uh, my uh, since I'm neither uh, Lithuanian, Estonian, or Latvian, my, my pronunciation is going to be bad because I was born with a tin ear in Michigan. So uh, I apologize to our distinguished guests for that. If I was more cosmopolitan as my uh, uh, leader, Ken Weinstein, is, we wouldn't have this problem. But alas, uh, we all have our limitations, and I have some severe ones you're going to see here. Sven Mixer has been foreign minister or, uh, um, yeah, for the Republic of Estonia since November 23rd. 2016. He has been a member of the Social Democratic Party since 2005 and served as Minister of Defense from 2014 to 2015. Edgars Rinkovic has been Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Republic of Latvia since October 25, 2011. Previously, he served as head of the Chancery of the President of Latvia from 2008 to 2011. Finally, Linus, now you're going to have to help me. Linkovich. Linkovich. Thank you. Very good. Uh, well, I tried the other ones, but that was, yeah, thank you. I, now you're being very nice, and I appreciate it. Has been a member of the uh, of Foreign Affairs of, of Lithuania since December, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Lithuania since December 13, 2012. Previously, he served as permanent representative of, of Lithuania to the North Atlantic Council and twice as Minister of Defense from 19... 1993 to 1996, and from 2000 to 2004. As I say, the ministers have agreed to open with some brief remarks. We'll open to questions, and they will allow some informal uh, conversation with you afterwards. So I want to thank you again for being here. Uh, we could not be happier and more honored by your presence. Which order do you want to start in? <laughs> <laughs> Edgar Srinkevich will say a few words now. In the order of seniority, right. Okay. <laughs> you see, we have really true Baltic solidarity. We will spend around one hour discussing who is going to start. <laughs> uh, but uh, thank you very much, first of all, for hosting us here today. I think that uh, this was very interesting and very informative day for all of us because we met uh, many U.S. Uh, senior officials, Secretary Tillerson, Speaker Ryan. Uh, we had a meeting with the leadership of the Senate uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. And I think that 
as the title was, the Baltic States and Trump administration, kind of uh, message we have got in our meetings, and we will continue, of course, tomorrow, is that the United States are absolutely committed to NATO, to Article 5, to presence in the Baltic region. I think that this is a uh, thing that we are hearing despite what sometimes there have been some messages during campaign and also some analysis, and I think that this is probably the most important takeaway of this day. Second uh, issue that I really want to touch upon, I think that uh, it is very important, of course, for us, like we did in 1990s, uh, occasionally to come as a group or separately to discuss security issues in our region, also to engage with the new U.S. administration. And the issue that I see is that more or less we all agree that we are not going to see the military provocation or challenge in our region, even if many think tanks, many journalists are really loving to search for World War III in the Baltics or search for New Crimea or, 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 or Eastern Ukraine. But having said that, I think that we are increasingly aware, and that was also something that we were discussing a lot today, but we discussed among ourselves as a group of the Baltic countries within European Union and also at NATO summit, is that actually we should be really very um, organized and uh, active countering what we call hybrid threats. Cybersecurity issues are probably issues that are currently very, uh, let's say, topical. Uh, also, information warfare. The Russian propaganda efforts are really absolutely, uh, I think, uh, out of any proportion. We can feel it. We have felt it while well, you guys were all kind of living in the totally different universe, like our European colleagues. Now, welcome to the club. We can, uh, we can share some... Uh, some, some thoughts, but I think that we all understand that we can deal with such kind of challenge only together. And what we should be good at, much better at uh, than, than we are, look, uh, when we are challenged by uh, the propaganda, uh, when we are challenged by the country like Russia that is really trying to revise international law and order, trying to undermine the whole set of values that we have developed, that we somehow, you know, look at this in a fragmented way. We think that we have to deal with cybersecurity and then we have to deal with information, let's say, campaigns and warfare. The guys in the opposite side, uh, they uh, look at it in a totally, in, from a totally different perspective. They combine all those tools and they are very successful so far. So one thing that I was particularly positively uh, stricken today in our meetings that also our U.S. counterparts, interlocutors, are also now coming to understanding that we should address this. I know that I have two very distinguished colleagues that also want to join into this discussion with their words, crisp words of wisdom. I already in advance agree with whatever they say, even <laughs> if it's not customary for me to do it, and I would very happily pass to, I don't know who is going now to speak. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Elias. I must apologize. I've lost my voice a bit. I've, we all have been in town since Wednesday last week. <laughs> and, you know, the, uh, there's been quite a significant fluctuation in temperature, going like from uh, minus 4 to plus 26 centigrade. I have no, absolutely no idea what that means in Fahrenheit. But <laughs> anyway, it's been too much, too much even, even, even for me coming from Estonia. Uh, so I, I try to keep my, oh, you are very lucky because that makes, makes me keep my interventions uh, very brief. And, and I, I, I will listen to my colleagues and, and jump in only when they start talking absolute um, bull. <laughs> but I'm sure that, that, that won't be the case. Uh, so I, uh, I just wanted to say that the, the, the title of today's uh, discussion is uh, really very intriguing. Uh, the Trump administration and, and the Baltic states, or the other way around, the Baltic states and the Trump administration. Uh, well, since we restored our independence uh, in the early 1990s, uh, we have been uh, 
working uh, with, uh, well, now Trump is the fifth U.S. president. We are working with, and we've seen uh, Democratic administrations and Republican administrations. We've seen in both the House and the Senate uh, Democratic and, and, and Republican majorities. Uh, but we have uh, enjoyed this support and, and, and uh, a very good cooperation with all of those uh, uh, congresses and, and, and administrations. And I have absolutely no reason to, to doubt that this is going to continue because this is an alliance that's been bound together by not by not by tactical interest, by by uh, a shared set of uh, values. And uh, I think that that both Europe and and the United States are, are very much interested in seeing uh, the continuation of this uh, rules-based world order that we have all benefited from over over many decades. We just, uh, a short while ago, attended a reception that was devoted to the uh, 60th anniversary of the signing of the Rome, Rome Treaty. And I think that, uh, and, and the 70th anniversary of the, of the Marshall Plan was, was mentioned by the, by the EU ambassador here in his, uh, in his remarks on that occasion. So I think that, that we all know that, uh, can, can, can clearly, see how much uh, the whole transatlantic community has, has, has benefited from the very close uh, relationship between the both uh, shores of the Atlantic Ocean. And I think that, that uh, when, we, when we maintain, when we keep this solidarity, when we keep this uh, strong transatlantic bond, uh, we, uh, we will uh, have many very successful decades ahead of us. And I think that, that um, Particularly in the, in the in the Baltic states, in a, in, a, in a part of the world that that actually, in the last century, uh, suffered uh, from uh, three successful su successive occupations, and actually lived uh, after having enjoyed independence and uh, independent statehood for two decades. We actually uh, lived uh, for approximately half a century under occupation. Uh, we, uh, I think, uh, testimony to what. what uh, what are the benefits of, of democracy and, and, and liberty and, and uh, uh, well, uh, rule of law? So uh, I think we can very much appreciate the, uh, the support and the, and the uh, encouragement that we have received from the U.S. administrations in the past, U.S. Congresses and U.S. people uh, during the 50 years when you never, never recognized the, the uh, annexation of our independent countries to the Soviet Union. And I think that we should also uh, stick to the same principle when it, uh, the principles when it comes to uh, today's uh, outstanding security challenges. For example, the, the illegal annexation of Crimea and the uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine. I also would like to say that I'm very happy to be here, to see so many familiar faces sitting here, and also some standing. <laughs> And uh, good to remind old good days when some early 90s as uh, being defense minister, Sven was also defense minister, Edgars was also deputy minister of defense, so we came from this defense circle. And we had only trilateral uh, meetings at that time. Three of us were meeting, delivering messages, uh, using, making full use of our cooperation. That was really very important, precious mo moments. And, and now it's good to recall, and now Ken coming to States with a united message as a united team, and bringing message very clearly that we are committed to the common, so to say, security, committed to the common challenges. We took part in the conference counter ISIL a few days ago here, hosted by State Department. And we just <coughs> feel that we, maybe we are not big, big countries and definitely will not impress anyone with the numbers and figures, but we can add some value by quality, by, by some contributions, and really we are going to do that. And needless to say, our message about defense spendings was also quite clear. Estonians already having that 2%. We are reaching that point where very soon, at least in Lithuania, we have dynamics of increase of defense budget, the best among NATO now these, these days. So it's shared by all political parties. As a member of parliament, I can say also it's shared really by all spectrum of, of political parties from left to the right. And we are doing that. This, this decision is sustainable, not because somebody asked to do that, but because we really need to, need to deliver. And it's a very good time to discuss uh, uh, issues of leadership, value-based leadership, very important. And uh, needless to say, I believe this 2017, every year is not boring, but 2017, 2017 becoming like stress test to our 
values to our Euro Atlantic values to our, so to say, uh, values which are really have some costs and not a given, like freedom, independence, it looks like automatically done by something given. No, it should be defended, and especially these days, we have to remind ourselves that our partnership should be based really on foundation, value-based value foundation. Uh, if not, if not, if we lose this, uh, it will be very risky. Then uh, people will start thinking and voting, not because of some some sort of say narratives, but because of emotions, uh, what is sometimes taking place, and this vacuum of leadership sometimes filled with the populism, radicalism, and we are surprised how it's happening like that, but they shouldn't be surprised if we uh, departing from the peoples at large, so to say. We cannot explain what we are doing, why we are doing, uh, no, no sharing, no ownership. And this is exactly, uh, we would like to talk about these issues. I'd like to talk about the importance and relevance of NATO which was created, and since then there was no no more world war at that time. There were conflicts in the world, but no world war. And that was a really important, important organization, so we have to make it stronger, more efficient. Again, we believe we can add some value, the know-how, especially when it comes to the hybrid threats. Uh, you know, not, not by accident, but uh, NATO centers of excellence dealing with energy security, strategic communication, cyber defense, they are situated in Baltic states, so we really can can deliver in this regard. Very important to have principled position, as mentioned by my, my colleagues, on, on these aggressions which are taking place in, in in European continent. And you know, in 21st century, when somebody tries to use uh, power, military power, to change borders in Europe, and uh, has has some some idea and hope to make it priceless somehow, you know, without any 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 price and consequences, this is really a very bad precedent. And uh, it's not just Crimea, it's not just I see leader of community, Ukrainian community, we expressing our strong solidarity with your people and doing that every day, I would say. And we'll continue doing, because this is stress test, not only about Ukraine, about us, about our perception of this crisis. Are we able to deliver? Are we able to do something? We cannot blame us on an annexing uh, Crimea, because we didn't do that. But we must share responsibility if we didn't do enough in order to prevent what is happening. And it's not first time. Uh, you all remember uh, war in South Caucasus and annexation of parts of Georgia in 2008. It was not it was re recently. There were also lessons learned by somebody who decided to continue in the same spirit because it was possible to do that. And lessons were not learned by us. So if we if we'll neglect or underestimate what, what is happening, it will be a very big, big mistake for the future, for the presidents in, in, in other regions. So we're not talking about us, uh, just Baltics, because we're sometimes asked, are you satisfied, are you not, are you concerned? It's not just about us, because we, are, uh, we have no reasons to doubt uh, security guarantees provided by alliance. Also commitments of United States, I have to say and agree with my uh, colleagues after the meetings, more and more clarity coming, more and more, so to say, picture becoming more and more clear. And, I personally, and we all, we have no doubts about these commitments, and it will be along the lines we'd like to see. But we're talking about the world in general. We're talking about Euro-Atlantic space, which is important for all of us, for both of for both sides of the ocean. And uh, we really would like to deliver and con contribute to this common thinking in order to preserve what was created through the decades, not to destroy, but to make stronger, better. So this is, these are the messages we are bringing, bringing here. Thank you. Thank you all for um, telling us a little bit about what you're seeing and also uh, what you've uh, heard in Washington. Um, you're, you're in more harmony and collegiality, certainly, than the Republican Party here is, let alone the rest of Congress. But, uh, but thank you. Um, I'm, I'd like to start off the question period by asking uh, um, the, the, the first question. Um, you mentioned NATO, and NATO is in the midst of implementing the deployment of four battalions throughout the Baltic states and Poland. Uh, some have called this uh, um, a reassurance force. I wondered what troop levels or thresholds you consider necessary to reassure uh, people in your countries or to guarantee, or you, you would recommend to guarantee the integrity of the respective states at this point. Maybe we'll start this time. Uh, frankly, uh, this is really, one can say it's very mi minimum, it's really symbolic, right? 1,000 soldiers in each of Baltic states. 
also I'm a bit more in Poland, uh, I'm talking about NATO decisions to have this enhanced uh, forward presence, troops. But this is uh, really more, more than symbolic, much more. It's a very strong political message also at the same time. It's multinational response, you know. And when we have troops uh, gen generated uh, by Canada and Latvia, by UK and Estonia, by Germany and Lithuania, by, by United States and Poland, and in addition, more nations coming. And this is really a very strong multinational response from NATO's side, uh, making sure that uh, we do care about our territories, I mean, NATO territories, populations. And uh, this, is, this is really a very, very important message. So it's like a framework also at the same time. How many is needed, as you say, it's for military authorities to decide. And uh, since it was uh, not much movement before, so we, we really would, would desire to have more, but this is already a very good course, and we're re really satisfied how decisions taken in, in Wales and consequently in Warsaw are being implemented. We're really uh, satisfied with the process, uh, and we believe it will, it will continue in the same spirit. But it's not that, just that. We're also contributing for our own, own point of view. And I was talking about about defense spendings. I can add that in Lithuania we also have our own rapid reaction forces, some 2,500 or up to 3,000, which are also ready to react and contribute. Uh, we, we, we also uh, got back to conscriptions. In, in our view, it's also a contribution to coll collective defense. We'll do our best in order to prepare host nation support when, it, when it's necessary. But military authorities must, must uh, plan the process accordingly, and I have no doubt it will, it will be done. But, you know, uh, when, one more point. It's a bit trick. It's, I'm coming to Russian propaganda now, mm. because Russians quite gifted to swap sites and to accuse others of what they're doing themselves, usually, and sometimes uh, presenting the issue that this is response measures to what NATO is doing. And sometimes even when I'm receiving questions from some journalists, even from <laughs> Western Europe, they're saying, uh, why we are provoking Russia, you know? So it's very interesting to listen, and uh, I believe those who are following station a bit more, more closely, it's by far not, nothing to compare even but uh, what's taking place. Maybe you know or not, but there are 350,000 <coughs> Russian troops additionally deployed in the western dis district of, of, of Russian Federation. They're rearming their military, including Iskandel, modernized uh, missiles capable to carry nuclear weapons, and so on and so forth. So it's really not, nothing by far to compare with 1,000 additional troops in, in our territories. But we're not going to compete or escalate. It's not our point. We have to make sure that no one should doubt that we will do what is necessary to do. But what, what's going on from Russian side is really not confidence building at all. But this is usually like, you know, testing, bluffing and testing. This is also kind of part of Russian methods to, to test whether somebody will react, if, if react at all, you know, if, if they will react too late or maybe not react. And if not, so they can do something else and against testing. Uh, how much are they allowed to do, for instance, in Ukraine, how much they allowed to do in Syria, and this is a part of the game. So we have really to be vigilant, we have to be simply adequately <laughs> well-adjusted and uh, not uh, being cast on this hook of propaganda, you know, it's very important. So answering to your question, so far it's going quite smoothly and we believe it will be continued. Uh, we are looking forward now for NATO ministerial we met with Secretary Tillerson today, but we will meet again with him a few days later. NATO, NATO Foreign Ministerial, preparing for, uh, for summit end of May. So this is really a good time to take stock and to look ahead what we are going to do with our alliance and how we'll make sure that he will be efficient as it was before and no one should doubt about the readiness to act if necessary. Yeah, I believe it's very difficult to add anything to what Linus just said, but um, I'll try anyway. Um, well, NATO is um, NATO forces, NATO troops. That's the uh, military forces of the 28 member states. And we are bound together by the Washington Treaty, which basically says that we take it upon ourselves to, uh, well, equitably share the burden of our collective defense and and to actually come to each other's defense. Uh, if it's necessary or when it's necessary. And um, indeed, uh, NATO collectively is by far the, the uh, strongest military player in the world. Obviously, U.S. individually is, is by far the strongest, uh, the strongest military uh, player in the world. But uh, together with the European allies, I think this, 
this uh, superiority is even 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 more impressive. So all the all the potential adversaries, all the challengers, know that that uh, if uh, NATO allies uh, stand by their commitments, um, it's um, virtually impossible to to defeat the alliance. And uh, I think this is a very important uh, message. Um, Russia has been behaving uh, in a very provocative manner over several years. When we look at the uh, aggression against Ukraine on the background of the, of the aggression against Georgia in 2008, we can see a pattern emerging whereby we can uh, say that Russia doesn't shy away from using military force to achieve its, uh, its objectives as, as, as their leadership defines those objectives. And, um, well, um, unfortunately, um, while uh, NATO collectively is by far superior to Russia, at least when it comes to conventional military strength, uh, unfortunately there is one narrow corner uh, where Russia enjoys local advantage, and that's the Baltic Sea region. Uh, where they do enjoy an advantage of uh, both space and time. They have significant military forces very close to our territory, and they can actually, since it's a very centralized, uh, rather authoritarian uh, system, they can actually start, uh, well, uh, take a decision. Well, it's a decision basically taken by a single individual, and they can start implementing it straight away. Uh, and in order to neutralize that uh, that advantage, I think that we we should we should uh, in, improve our situational awareness collectively. We should uh, uh, be actually uh, ready for very uh, uh, dynamic uh, changes in the security environment. Uh, but we should also deliver a very clear deterrent message. And so it's not about the uh, necessarily about numbers of forces because collectively we we, we have enough to to uh, if necessary defeat any adversary any any enemy uh, and we definitely do have uh, enough uh, military power to deter an adversary. Uh, we do not think that Russia is an irrational player. We believe that uh, Putin is a rather uh, very much a calculating uh, guy. He is definitely he's, he's running an, an administration, he's running a regime that is expansionist and revanchist, but, but he's uh, rational essentially, and so that means that he can be deterred, and, and, and uh, that takes a very uh, clear message where, whereby we uh, demonstrate our resolve and determination and unity. And this uh, new deterrent poster in our part of the world is exactly what. Uh, what uh, what we need to do, I mean, to deliver this, uh, this unambiguous uh, deterrent uh, message. Obviously, from a military planner's point of view, I think uh, if you are planning for a war which you want to win, if you want to defeat an enemy, then it takes a slightly different footprint, slightly different posture uh, than what it takes to actually uh, deliver that deterrent message. So I think that, that uh, by way uh, of, of, of deterrence, uh, what uh, we have been doing as an alliance following the, or the by impl implementing the decisions taken first in Wales uh, at an NATO summit, then in Warsaw, is, is actually putting, putting in place a deterrent posture uh, that I think is, uh, is very much doing the job of, of, of uh, delivering this uh, message to, to the leaders in Moscow. Well, <clears throat> thank you for provoking. Defense ministers, no. <laughs> I think you just heard defense ministers talking. The only difference between defense ministers and foreign ministers is actually that defense ministers talk much less but do much more <laughs> in their practical work. Uh, just three points. The first one, really, we can debate like we did it back when we were knocking on the doors of NATO how much troops really we need to defend the Baltics. You can speak about 1,000, 10,000. 50,000 is enough. I think that's really for military planners, but I do believe that the current decisions taken in Warsaw, and they must be implemented, they are in the process of implementation, uh, those decisions are adequate for, what my colleagues said, deterrence purposes. Second very important uh, aspect which I think we should take into account, and I think that it is very good, that three out of four battalion battle groups are multinational. Uh, 
Canadian-led battalion group consists of uh, Canadian troops, Italian, Spanish, Polish, Albanian, Slovenian. There are French, British, other contingents. So I think that's also very important that this is a very strong message that uh, the alliance is serious, not only about the political message, but also it comes with a very serious equipment and stuff. And finally, yes, to some extent, well, I wouldn't love to be in that role, but unfortunately, uh, I don't have much uh, choice. But we, to some extent, resemble what West Berlin in the Cold War and High North in the Cold War was. That was a kind of litmus test for the alliance. Uh, they were troops, but I think that there was also a very strong deterrence message, don't mess up with us. And I think that's also the case here. So we can debate numbers. I will leave that to experts and folks in defense uh, ministries, but I do believe that the current decisions are uh, adequate to, to the level of threat. If we see that situation is deteriorating, then we have to think about some increase again. Thank you. Thank you all three. All right, I'm going to open this up for questions. Please ask a question. If you want to give a speech, get your own program. Uh, um, and I, I will try to stop that, but uh, I will invite questions. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for taking the time to come and be with us today. Do I need that? I was in the United States Marine Corps. We didn't use these. My name is Ross Duckworth. I'm retired from the United States Marine Corps. I'm a defense consultant here in Washington, and I consult for an Estonian company. In October, someone who is going to remain anonymous, but I think all three of you probably know, said that uh, the people of Estonia would not only welcome, but would encourage the basing of United States military forces there. And that just shocked me. And I said, well, how are the Estonian people going to react? And the response was, well, we've already asked them. And they're in favor of it, including our Russian population, because they'd rather see United States military in Estonia permanently than Russian military there. Thank you. That was a statement, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the question is, so would you react to this if you're willing to? I just said, well, uh, the... Uh, 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 was the decision, this, uh, some decision was to put in place this enhanced forward presence of the alliance. And uh, we have just seen over the past week, seen the, the uh, French and British uh, troops arrive in Estonia with uh, heavy armor. And, um, and, and obviously, I mean, uh, from the deterrent, uh, uh, deterrence point of view, obviously, the American flag is extremely important. and, and uh, uh, sends a very strong signal to, to also uh, on our neighbors across the border. Uh, so yes, we, we, we definitely uh, want to see uh, a strong allied presence on our soil. Obviously our own forces are also NATO forces, uh, but uh, having uh, both uh, uh, European and, and North American allies um, present, uh, training together with our uh, forces, uh, being ready to do what it takes to maintain and enhance the security of our region. That's something that our people very much want to see. No, it's, uh, we are sometimes inventing some terminology, you know, it's uh, sometimes very sensitive for somebody to call it permanent presence, so it's a sustainable, continuous presence. I would say permanently rotational, I would add, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> Assistance, which is consistent. As, as permanent as possible, so because it's really a very strong message outside, inside, and a very big, big insur insurance, reassurance measure, so to cut it short. So very much agree with the ideas you just announced. Not me. Yeah. Well, the, <laughs> well, the answer is yes. Now, I want to remind you about questions and not statements. I'm going to Yes, sir. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey. I'm an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. I'm wondering if you guys are reinforcing your frontier with Kaliningrad. And also, um, could you each tell me what still is on your wish list from the US? 
Uh, you've mentioned a lot of things we have given you, but what, what are we resisting giving you? What would you like to see from the U.S. still? It cannot, cannot be former diplomats, you know. <laughs> but very good question. No, really we're discussing why we've not disclosed now all the new would like to talk, but as I said, really I would like to engage as deep as, as, as far as possible and to make full use of uh, instruments we have already here. As I said, we have more, more footprint definitely by all meanings, be it training, or, um, education, or even, even ship visits are important, you know, to our seaport. Everything is important. Also, we're talking about prepositioning of equipment, uh, which is also to facilitate reinforcement, but this, this is important. We have affiliates of some, of some maybe assets which are already in Europe for, for training purposes. There are m many issues, but mostly what we would like to see, principles, clear position, uh, assessment of the situation, value-based, as I said, because it has to be set uh, by, by big, big countries uh, what's going on now in the world, and in particular what they said in our continent. It should be said that position must be, must be clear. Uh, we really expect that position on sanctions will be will remain in place. What we discussed uh, today in, in Congress and Senate, and we believe we, we met some understanding because it's the only leverage we're using. You know, well, I'm not uh, proud of language of sanctions, uh, by, by the way, just to, to mention because it's not not the way countries should talk. But if it's last resort uh, to make sure that others will listen, at least to pay some attention to what's happening, it's important. Uh, and, and this is really, really something uh, important when we're doing that in coordination, uh, Europeans and Americans, uh, how, how it could, could work. So again, we expect this very consistent, clear, clear position in this regard as well. Maybe some more aspects could be mentioned. Well, um, uh, I, I think it's fair to say that the um, dynamic uh, since Wales has been extremely positive. Uh, so we are on the right path. We are not there yet. There's still a lot to be done. And, but we did not come uh, to, to, to DC with a shopping list. Well, for example, um, fighting international terrorism, international terrorist organizations, is very high on the um, list of priorities for the new US administration. And when we discuss uh, this uh, challenge, which I think is the shared challenge uh, for the whole of the international community, for all, all the democratic uh, states and nations, uh, then uh, we basically come together and we discuss as to how to best collectively address this challenge, uh, how everyone, each one of us can contribute in a meaningful way. Uh, and, and the same applies to the security in the Baltic Sea region, because uh, the security is, is essentially indivisible. And, and, and when we discuss the, uh, how to enhance, how to maintain the stability in the Baltic Sea region, how to enhance security in our, our part of the world, uh, then we discuss very openly as to how each and every one of the allies can contribute in a, in a meaningful way so as to give added value to this sort of, uh, security uh, posture, and a deterrent posture in our region. So it's not uh, as if we come with a shopping list and say that we would like U.S. to do this, this, and this, and, and then we would enjoy the, the, the benefits of this uh, contribution. I think it's, uh, uh, it's uh, how, how the alliance should work. We, we, we all contribute it's 28 for 28, whether it's about uh, the security in the Baltic Sea region, whether it's about uh, um, security in the Black Sea region, or whether it's about uh, fighting international terrorism. Well, uh, basically, basically, I very much really agree with what Linus and Sven just said. I think that uh, uh, what uh, is very important, and we very appreciate also the assistance that uh, we are receiving already through various financial instruments. Also, we had a big discussion on the uh, ERI uh, initiative and uh, and so on. But I would say that. I see still the possibility that actually is in the benefit for both the Baltics as well as the United States for more enhanced uh, cooperation in the field of strategic communications. Uh, Linus already, I believe Linus already mentioned all three centers of excellence we are hosting, strategic communications center of excellence. That is, by the way, not only directed, let's say, on state actors who are providing propaganda, but we also do 
those guys in the center do a lot of work also to analyze the ISIS propaganda. So this is not, you know, just uh, one-sided thing. What I would love to see is probably greater U.S. involvement in that kind of work that is actually targeting both challenges. And finally, uh, I do very much want to kind of uh, also emphasize what, uh, what my Estonian colleague has said. Frankly, what we would love to hear also from our U.S. counterparts is how we can uh, more assist when it comes also to the fight against terrorism. We are already training, for instance, Iraqi uh, forces, uh, our trainers from Latvia, military trainers, instructors are there. We have came also with some, let's say, very specific financial contributions in some of the programs that are uh, also helping to, to stabilize Syria or to stabilize the situation there. But I think that what we sometimes lack is, and also from this audience uh, and this question you sometimes hear, what U.S. can do. Very often it's also the question what we can do, because sometimes there are some minor issues, of course, minor things that are equally important as big things, and I think that this is something that uh, we discussed already today. We'll continue to discuss it on, on Friday in NATO Foreign Minister's meeting, in NATO summit, in NATO Defense Minister. So it should be two-way street. I'd like to add briefly to, so, sorry for that, but it's important, I believe. Edgar's already mentioned strategic communications, but this is, we have to really be more active, accumulate more, more resources to counter propaganda <coughs> everywhere, and frankly, support these projects which you're already having in the United States, run by VBG, like Voice of America, Free Europe. This is very important, and it was underestimated for a long time. Propaganda is a big weapon. It's, you know, lie is not an alternative point of view. If somebody thinks it's freedom of speech, it's no, it's something else. It's a weapon. It's backed by resources, uh, su supported uh, very strongly. And we're just starting to look at that. We're just starting to do something. And it's really not enough. Because if you can, you know, in normal battle, you had some artillery attack before something, you know, happening next day. Now it's no need to, to use artillery. You can brainwash uh, people and then they will be ready to welcome occupation forces as it was in Crimea, by, by, by the way. Uh, it's re really widely used, and here we have to coordinate and to accumulate Europeans and Americans to work together and to, to you know, to counter this, this threat which is becoming more and more powerful, very detrimental. Thank you. Sir. Hi, Robert Shredder with International Investor. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the old adage, uh, if you want to know what someone's policy is, look at their budget, not what they say. You tell me you're straining to reach 2% of GDP. If Russia is such a threat that the three of you are telling us they are, why not 5%, 10%, 15%? During World War II, we spent over 40% of our GDP defending the nation. So what's this big strain to get to 2% if you are really that worried? I, I can, can try to say something. You know, if you're talking about uh, society, uh, well-being of the society, you should take into account uh, social care also. You should take into account uh, all other segments of society. You cannot kill economy, kill country, and pretend that you are protecting your, your country. It should be done in a balanced way. But this 2%, it's really well measured. Uh, it's uh, commonly agreed uh, by all of us and must be implemented. It's not yet implemented. That's a problem, especially by Europeans, by, by us. So we are just on, on the way to do that. But I do not think it should be done just, as you said, 50%, as it was in, uh, I don't know, 1913 or something. <laughs> I, I know it's, it's not, not the way to go here. So we should be also rational and to do that uh, really, really well backed by uh, potential and, uh, frankly speaking, uh, by output efficiency also. Uh, so that's, that's not, not, a, not a question about that. Well, Estonia is taking our um, defense and, uh, and security extremely seriously. We've been spending 2% uh, or more, and this year actually uh, we are uh, close to 2.2% uh, without defense spending, but we've been spending 2% or more since uh, 2012 already. Uh, well, 40%, uh, I, I don't think that many European countries are actually uh, collecting uh, 
much more than 40% as, as you know, the, 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 tax, the government tax revenue all, all in all. Uh, so basically, you cannot spend the, the whole of your GDP on defense, even even theoretically. I think, but um, but I think this two percent is actually a, a sort of agreed formula. It's uh, it's sort of a rather equitable burden sharing, uh, rather than the sort of adequate measure of how much it costs to defend your country. Uh, and when it comes to defense, then I think that. Uh, uh, scales matter. I mean, Estonia is a country of 1.3 million people. Uh, Russia is uh, uh, almost exactly 100 times larger. So whatever the percentage of our GDP we would uh, spend on our defense, uh, it would hardly be sufficient to, uh, well, be able to defend ourselves against such a powerful country, and so this is such a large country, uh, should it come to that. Uh, so I think that it's only logical that we um, enter into alliance with uh, like-minded countries, countries that share the same set of values, and, and agree to, to uh, well, defend each other uh, should need come, and, uh, and, and also, uh, well, uh, take sufficient care to develop our economy, to to uh, uh, promote uh, social welfare in our country, and, and and enjoy democracy and rule of law. And I, I think that's uh, um, that's how NATO was was born uh, more than 60 years ago. I think it was a common realization after the end of World War II that that uh, in democracies, well, you uh, after the end of the war, you should mobilize and and vote. A significant part of your resources on, on civilian reconstruction. Uh, Russia, or Soviet Union back then, actually did not demobilize and 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 uh, well, try to maintain that uh, military might that's uh, built up over, over the course of the war. And then by the late 1940s, uh, the democratic countries realized that individually none of them would be able to defend themselves against such a such a powerful adversary. Collectively, however, it was possible, and they. And that's, I think, how we should proceed from here. Well, uh, thanks God that we are not at war. I just want to remind, so 50 or 40 percent analogy is not something that I would agree with you. But uh, just uh, adding to what, what both my colleagues have said, I think that uh, we could, of course, discuss uh, if 5 or 10 percent would be enough. No, that wouldn't be enough. We wouldn't be able to, alone to, let's say, uh, defend our countries if there is really the kind of, you know, wartime situation. Also, even if we would spend uh, 75 percent, notwithstanding, of course, all the issues with economy. But I think that we also should look at this issue, like in your own words, that you should look at policies where your budgets are. Let's not forget that we are also sharing the common border with Russia and Belarus in case of Latvia and, and Lithuania. We also have to take very seriously those challenges. So this is more complex issue and uh, we do it. Uh, by the way, I think that to some extent, yes, uh, it was quite a big mistake uh, during economic crisis, especially in my country, to cut defense budget. But then look, uh, we also were rather happy to see the kind of reset policy that was initiated. We tried also to benefit. And we really wanted to see, of course, a kind of uh, more or less civilized relations with Russia. That all has gone actually in 2014 when we understood where the real uh, issues are. So very much agreeing with, with arguments that have been presented here. I just want to say that this can be endless discussion. I, I, by the way, think that we will not stop in Latvia at 2%. I think we will go higher. The real issue here is not only accountancy or invoices, but also the real issue here is also capabilities that we should really develop uh, both to address very traditional military challenges, but also those uh, rather interesting, unusual things that we are talking, cyber and, and, and strategic communication. Ms. Becker. No, uh, the lady, young lady in front of you, first. I'll get to others. 
Your Excellencies, thank you so much for coming here. It's, um, it's great to have you here. I'm a token Lithuanian uh, in the room, and I'm a graduate student here in Washington, D.C. Um, it is actually, frankly, relieving to hear. It's a relief to hear that um, your talks with Thomas' mission went well, and it's, they seem to support um, the Baltic states and uh, the situation at hand. But if we come back to Europe and we look at the recent poll made by Carnegie Europe, 49% of the European NATO members, on average, support um, triggering Article 5 to defend the Baltic states. Could you, could you tell us more about what you think should be done or is being done to actually get the popular support from the European NATO allies? Thank you. Well, uh, I think that uh, it's, again, uh, part of the, uh, this uh, strategic communication exercise. Uh, I think that uh, it is quite well understood in our three, three countries uh, what NATO is about and, and why it's important to uh, remain committed to those allied obligations under the Washington Treaty and, and, and why it's important to preserve and defend this uh, rule-based world order and the, 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 the international order that, that is based on uh, international law. Uh, but um, I think that, uh, that uh, many other European countries should, should actually uh, pay much more attention than they have been doing so far on, on uh, selling the alliance and the idea of the, of the alliance to their own people. Uh, but uh, I'm happy to say that, that political leaders uh, in, in virtually all allied countries understand what's, what is at stake. And, and uh, there's broad agreement as to how detrimental it would be to, to uh, lose this, uh, the credibility of the alliance and uh, uh, how, well, those are the powerful forces in the world who are not interested in seeing this, uh, this international uh, order sort of uh, strong and credible, how they, would, uh, how, would, uh, how they might uh, take advantage of the, of the situation if we um, sort of, uh, dropped our, 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 our unity and resolve. I'd like to say that, you know, we have to uh, draw some lessons and to, to understand that the lack of leadership, in Europe in particular, it's really a problem. It has to do with the providing our, pursuing with our ideas, explaining to public, and it has to do with the lack of resilience. If we're talking about lack of resilience in the East, it's the same equally, equally applicable to the West. And there are a lot of examples. So why people are uh, indifferent sometimes, electorate indifferent, not, not perceiving threats as the real threats, that also explains why we, why we have to convince them and to, to add additional efforts to, to make them understand what's going on in the world. It's re really, really very, very difficult. Uh, some, some examples, I don't know whether here in the audience somebody from Netherlands, I don't know, but it's not because I'm, I would say a bad example, but as, as example. Uh, maybe those who following, there was an association agreement between, between the European Union and Ukraine. It was ratified by all European parliaments. And suddenly in Netherlands, uh, it was uh, law relatively fresh, like a year and a half old, on, on referendum. And uh, some group, some political group, decided to test this law, how it works. And they chosen Ukraine just for the testing. And by the way, cynically even said that they do not care about Ukraine, you know, it's not a problem for them, but they want to punish their government, you know, bureaucrats in Brussels, and just to, to test. And it was consultative referendum, consultative, not obligatory, but again, they said that they have to respect, uh, you know, voices of, of people, and, and they have to revisit this uh, support uh, and back up for, for association agreement, you know. It so, looked for me really a bit strange. It's Western democracy with institutions. <laughs> But uh, the referendum was uh, about the issue which has nothing to do with the reality. Because uh, they, they were, just briefly, just to inform you, there were three points, three, three aspects, what uh, was disturbing uh, Dutch society. First of all, they were concerned about uh, membership in European Union. Association, association agreement has to do with the membership, which is not the case, uh, because membership is different track. And there are association agreements with the Mediterranean countries, North African countries. It's really not about membership. Second concern was military cooperation, which is also up to the governments uh, to, to increase, to decrease, or to have no cooperation. It's, it's also not the case. And third concern was visa-free regime. 
which th thanks God it's coming, but it's a different process. It's different. It's not about the cessation agreement. So my point was uh, to, to our Dutch colleagues that, look, if you're respecting your people, so explain them what they're voting for, because it was emotionally done and just, you know, I also consider a lack of resilience and also responsibility of governments to explain to the people what they're voting for. Uh, this is very important. And, and, and basically, uh, more, more examples like that. There were also some votes in, in the French parliament, I remember, about sanctions that had to be lifted or not. Or not. Uh, there was a minority of members of parliament voted, but nevertheless, message message was spread like that, also very counterproductive, I would say. So this is really, really lack of leadership and positive and uh, for, 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 for forthcoming, so to say, uh, work of the governments to explain to people what we're doing. If not, uh, we will have results like that. People will be, will be indifferent. And again, coming back, by the way, to the Dutch issue, I volunteered to go to Dutch Parliament and spent a whole day, 25th of October, I remember, uh, I suggested to, to talk. It was interesting to discuss with the members of factions, political groups. It was unusual that somebody coming to talk about know, issues like that. But it was well received, but it was a bit too late, you know. Not, not too late, because now it's okay. Uh, no, no, no. It's solved, I would say, but it was uh, felt that, look, it could be done before, earlier. So it's, we're talking about Western Europe, we're not talking about Eastern Europe. We're talking about something which is in our courtyard. And you know, the message is that uh, the zone of comfort, that everything is given, it's gone. It's not given, it's not granted, uh, nothing is granted. We have to be quite focused in order to make sure it's happening in all, all aspects. Also with regard to the Russian, Russian issue. And uh, one more message I see, my good friend Pionkovsky, who is... Uh, Former, former advisor, well, former advisor to the President Putin, let's, let's, Ilarionov, sorry, former advisor to President Putin, and he knows much better what we're talking about here, but my point is that we have to not mix up Russia and Kremlin, Russia and Kremlin. Uh, I met today also Vladimir Karamurza, <laughs> today we talked, uh, a journalist who was uh, second time attempted to be poisoned, it's also Russia. So I'm never mixing up Kremlin and Russia. And when I'm saying that I'm Russophobic, I'm reminding that I'm not Russo I'm Kremlophobic maybe, but I'm not <laughs> Russophobic. I, I, I can speak Russian, I, I, I like to talk to Russians, and we're inviting Russians for Russian forums. We're discussing with Russia and Russians uh, uh, together with Ilarionov and others about future of Russia within Europe. And this is the way to go. So uh, th let's do that, but let's re really, really kind of uh, re refresh our, our, so to say, ammunition, and let's uh, take it very seriously, more, much more seriously than, than it was before. Let me let our colleague uh, from Cato's ask a question. Definitely Ilarionov, not Pionskov. Since, since, since you brought him in, I have to let him uh, first of all, thank you very much for uh, the presentations. May I ask you the question that I asked a few hours ago in the other audience, but I think it's quite relevant at these days. Um, if one bad morning we would be walking up by the news that one of your neighboring countries, Belarus, is being occupied, what would be your response? Not only U.S. administration, but administrations of Baltic countries. Uh, I have to say that it's uh, it's not uh, already occupied. It would be too 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 much, maybe. <laughs> but uh, frankly, frankly, Belarus is really quite integrated into into Russian Federation already. And the Edgar spoke about the border, so we have already almost thousand kilometers long border with Kaliningrad region and Belarus, six hundred fifty plus Belarus, two hundred fifty plus uh, with, with with Kaliningrad region. The border control is integrated. Uh, special services are integrated. Uh, air defense integrated. Now we'll have uh, exercises up at uh, two thousand seventeen, and they're bringing. Uh, big quantities of uh, weapon systems into Belarus, not only in the Russian Federation, but also Belarus. Uh, God knows whether we will be bring them back or not. Uh, probably, probably not. So they, they already, uh, it's de facto. So we have to take it as reality. And our reaction is exactly like that. So we're telling that to our military planners and others to take, take into account what is going on in Belarus. Uh, same as it's, it's like enlarged Russia already. Uh, although there are some uh, sometimes Belarusians very sensitively looking at the, at the points what I'm going to say, but this is really some elements of sovereignty still remaining because they have some peculiar specific views on 
on Crimea issue, by the way, on South Ossetia, on Abkhazia. They didn't join automatically sanctions against us, uh, which is our neighborhood. It's important. So there are some issues which <coughs> we would like to promote and support. But in general, it's already de facto uh, taking place. So I, I, I'm really not naive and do not expect anything else happening here. So this is just, just reality. When you look at Russian uh, military planning, when you look at Russian military exercises, uh, then um, for all practical purposes, uh, Putin treats Belarus as part of his own territory. Uh, but, uh, but obviously I agree with Linus uh, much that, that uh, Belarus does enjoy some sort of, um, some, uh, some degree of sovereignty. And, and obviously Lukashenko, who's been often described as, the, as, as Europe's last dictator, uh, by no means a democratic leader, but he's been doing a very tough balancing act. He's been sitting on a fence, uh, well, basically on one hand, trying not to be embraced to death by, by Putin, but he knows that he cannot afford to try to fall to the other side either because it's a very tall fence. And, uh, so so it's, it's, it's a very tough balancing act. Uh, but um, I think that what we should do collectively, I mean, I, I wouldn't like to speculate uh, about a... a it may be a possible scenario, but what we should, uh, what we should do is, is to basically make it, make, uh, uh, make it very clear that uh, uh, it's not in the interest of the current regime to, to launch another provocation, to launch another aggression. And I think that, that when it comes to Ukraine, then obviously what we have been doing as an international community, by way of imposing sanctions, uh, we have not uh, uh, been successful in in making Russia uh, return Crimea to Ukraine or stop uh, interfering in the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, but at least I think that we have had some some effect in in preventing Russia from growing, going even further in Ukraine or elsewhere, because clearly, I mean, the, their objectives when they launched this aggression, the, 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 the grand plan was not to not to well, was not limited to those uh, to Crimea and those two uh, two regions in the eastern part of the country. So I think that it's sort of um, we have had some success in in sticking together in maintaining this uh, uh, European and transatlantic unity and, and and maintaining strong pressure on Russia. Uh, if if this unity should crumble, then I think that it's an open invitation for Russia to do something uh, to launch another aggressive uh, operations somewhere else. Uh, not, uh, not against the NATO ally, I don't think, but, but in somewhere else in, in its immediate neighborhood. Well, uh, I think that one thing that we should already understand from purely military point of view, Belarus is very well integrated in Russian military system. Actually, that's where I believe we are speaking about uh, not even the kind of Belarusian armed forces, those are actually Russian armed forces, but by proxy. However, uh, if we, and we, by the way, are um, concerned about upcoming Zappa 2017 exercise later this year, we know that that's a public source information, around 4,000 train cars have been ordered in Russia just to move troops. Uh, that is a very concerning situation. Uh, my very honest answer, would it mean the kind of uh, wave of European Union economic sanctions? My honest answer is I don't know. We still have a couple of elections and we still have to survive many things before we actually talk about even extension of the current sanctions vis-a-vis -vis Minsk agreement. Uh, but if you look from the purely military point of view, I think that would be a very serious situation that I referred earlier. That would be kind of a um, deterioration of security situation in our neighborhood that would require or for NATO to reconsider decisions taken and to reinforce its presence in the Baltic region and Poland, no doubt. I think that kind of uh, occupation, as you are saying, would be another a breach of international law, and that would actually be also the test to the current U.S. administration, to NATO again, 
and also to the European Union. So this is very unfortunate situation, but, uh, but I think that theoretically sp speaking, uh, we, would be, uh, we would be in a very, very difficult situation analyzing and providing uh, the answer. I, I don't have the kind of, you know, uh, optimistic uh, answer for you or for the audience. Everything will be okay. That's not going to happen because it's not going to happen. We, sh we, we can't rule it out. Uh, and then we also know how difficult at the very beginning, by the way, let's uh, not also forget it was to convince also European Union to go beyond just listing some of nice people uh, in 2014 to go for more serious economic sanctions, which in turn actually happened. And the push was the downing of MH17 flight over Ukraine. If that wouldn't happen, if those things that uh, actually we saw in the development in the eastern Ukraine, maybe also EU unity wouldn't be holding. So we shouldn't also take for granted what we have already. We shouldn't uh, underline. Uh, we shouldn't uh, also think that what EU has now in place is something that is too less, too late. Actually, uh, it's a remarkable unity, but. If there would be new tests, I think that would be also quite a test for both, for NATO, for EU, and the whole international order. Um, I'm going to respect the uh, minister's desire to have some time afterwards to mingle with you informally, and uh, it's rare, it's generous of them, and I want to I want to allow them to do that. Um, in closing, I'd like to not only thank them, but we've had discussions a little bit about um, some of the difficulties of this, but I can't help but think that What's striking is that free nations, large and small, can stand together in this process under so threats, like, under threats. Uh, the big nations. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that uh, uh, um, that that happens because, as you say, you're willing to talk to democratic peoples and make them understand what's at stake, and even what's at stake when they're being asked to stand against giant threats because they're being asked to trust others who are their allies to be there with them. Um, that is, I understand, not easy, and because it's not easy sometimes even for large nations to, for the peoples to face threats and, uh, um, and see them ahead of time and to reduce those risks. So um, it's a tribute to the leadership that, uh, uh, that your nations and ours have had and I think it's a tribute to your efforts to come here and work with the new administration and Congress at this dynamic time in Europe and in the United States when these are all, again, under a kind of scrutiny to reestablish that relationship that protects all of us. So thank you for coming to Hudson. Thank you for uh, uh, the efforts to maintain these important alliances. And um, in the tradition that we've had here at Hudson, we, have tried, we are trying to continue the process of helping to educate and make people understand and also to face these new threats. We've begun to do a lot more work on information warfare with both other uh, European allies and with U.S. agencies and also tried to do more to help explain the international relationship that is sometimes forgotten here. So thank you for being here and helping us and thank you most of all for the efforts you do for your country and for the alliance. Thank you.